welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight up to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lastly. And our guest this evening is Dr. Eileen Bjorkman. She was commissioned through Officer Training School in 1980. She served 30 years in the Air Force. She was a senior non-rated air crew member, flew more than 700 hours as a flight test engineer in more than 25 different aircraft, primarily Mike's favorite, the F-4 Phantom II, but also the F-16 Fighting Falcon, the venerable C-130 Hercules, and the C-141 Starlifter. And tonight we're going to be talking about Unforgotten in the Gulf of Tonkin, a story of the U.S. military's commitment to leave no one behind. Brand new book from Potomac. Dr. Bjorkman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me on the program. Dr. Bjorkman, you certainly come to this book with a unique experience as a flight test engineer in the Air Force. Uh, So give us a little bit about your background. So my uh, first real assignment, I actually went to school for about a year and a half when I first came in the Air Force to get a second degree in aero engineering. And my first assignment out of that was as a flight test engineer at uh, Holloman Air Force Base, uh, testing inertial navigation systems. Uh, That's where I got a lot of my C-130 and C-141 time. That, uh, you know, sparked an interest in uh, flight test. I enjoyed that uh, job. And so I applied to uh, test pilot school. Um, The test pilot school doesn't train just test pilots. It trains also navigators, flight test engineers. And nowadays, you know, RPA operators, uh, you know, getting a wide variety of of folks there. So anyway, so I went through the school there and then was you know, able to fly in a variety of different aircraft and a lot of ejection seat aircraft, but also a lot of large aircraft as well. It was there uh, when I stayed at Edwards that I got to fly in the F-4 and the S-16. Those were kind of the two main uh, fighter aircraft that I flew during my uh, four years there at Edwards. Yeah, it was uh, it was a very, uh, very interesting experience. You know, a lot of times the pilots would get tired of flying, believe it or not, and they'd say, hey, you want to take the aircraft and fly for a while? And, and uh, you know, and I, and I just learned a lot, you know, about flying from that. I had been working on my private pilot's license, but, you know, having those experiences actually flying in uh, high-performance aircraft and, and things like that gave me a much better appreciation, I think, for, you know, what pilots go through in their day-to-day jobs, uh, whether they're fighter pilots or, you know, flying an airliner. I really want to dig into the meat of the book, but before we do, I have to ask you, if you had to pick one, what's your favorite F-4 Phantom or F-16 Fighting Falcon? I would, uh, the F-4, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're both great airplanes, but um, I just, there was just something about flying in the F-4. It just felt like an airplane I wanted to go to war in, you know. (laughs) I'm going to throw something out there. You mentioned Holloman, a place that is also very near and dear to my heart. Uh, For those that don't know, Holloman was my first duty station. I met my wife out there, and this was in the age of the F-117, but how did you find Alamogordo? Oh, I love living there. So yeah, and in fact, I did two tours there. So my first assignment was there in uh, 82 to 84 as a lieutenant. And then I was back at uh, at the uh, test group there um, as squadron commander from um, 95 to 98. I just love the whole area there. So I love New Mexico. Uh, you know, just just love living in Alamogordo and uh, you know, being a part of the base there. And, and when I was there in the 90s, you know, when I was there earlier, they had the F-15s there and the lead in fighter training. And then when I was back there, like you, they, they had the 117s and the F-4s were still flying there too. The Germans were flying the F-4s. So it, it was just an amazing place to be on both assignments. Yeah, it's a it's a terrific base. It's a great community. Yeah, the the Germans did fly the the F fours out of there, and I believe they mm-hmm. flew the tornadoes also. Then we had the the QF fours were out there as well, 
And I was driving parallel to the runway one day when one of the QF4s took off and lost control and crashed. Oh, dear. Uh, and in my rearview mirror, it looked like a movie. This this ginormous explosion went off. And it was it was certainly a memorable experience. I think I'd been on active duty all of about three weeks at that point. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I've never actually seen an airplane crash live. So, yeah, that would, that would have been an incredible experience. At least nobody was hurt. So. No, one, no one was hurt, obviously, as, as it was a QF4. For those that might not know, that is an unmanned F4. And that is, I'll, I'll be honest, that is as close to like kind of a movie explosion as anything I've ever seen. But that's, that's neither here nor there. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about Unforgotten in the Gulf of Tonkin. So it's not only a story about Willie Sharp. He was a Navy pilot pilot line F-8 off the Bonhomme Richard aircraft carrier in uh, 1965, uh, early days of the Vietnam War. And uh, he was hit over Vietnam and, uh, you know, was trying to make it, he knew he couldn't make it all the way back to the carrier, was trying to head out over the Gulf. Um, And there was some cloud cover and uh, he wasn't sure if he was over uh, land or water you know exactly and when he when he finally pulled the ejection handles um and uh, so the story is all about you know his his ejection subsequent rescue um you know and then some of the aftermath of of that and uh and when I was writing the story, uh, you know, I realized that there was a lot of um, history that led up to forces being in place to rescue him in the first place in Vietnam. It was still the early days of the war, and they didn't really have a lot of rescue forces in place at that time. Everything was still a little bit catch-as-catch-can compared to how they did things later in the war. And so I was interested in how that all came about, and then that led me, you know, back to World War II, you know, and, and just kind of a history of uh, combat search and rescue in general, and, uh, you know, kind of wound up weaving that in to the story. Um, it originally started out as an article, but it just kept getting longer and longer and longer. Um, and then I, uh, you know, was also exploring the themes of the people who didn't get rescued, the people who uh, got left behind, uh, you know, as MIAs, and then the continued search for them as well. So, you know, kind of that whole theme of the commitment to leave no one behind, uh, you know, it extends beyond just rescuing people from the battlefield, but continuing to look for them, you know, after the war ends. Yeah, for those that haven't read the book yet, you know, so beyond the one rescue in particular, this is really also a history of search and rescue, what we would today call combat search and rescue. So tell us a little bit about that process of, of going back to come forward to Vietnam. So yeah, originally, like I said, originally it just started with, you know, how those uh, particular aircraft that rescued him, you know, got where they were. But then as I started doing a little bit more reading, uh, and I realized that there was a lot more to the story. So I kept going backwards and, okay, well, how did you know, how did the aircraft first get in Vietnam? Well, how did we wind up in that situation where we didn't have any real good combat search and rescue aircraft when we started Vietnam with the exception of the Albatross, you know, the HU-16, and none of those were in Vietnam initially. So yeah, so how did that happen, you know? And then kind of going back to, well, what happened after Korea? Why did we kind of disband our uh, combat search and rescue capabilities after Korea? And then of course, well, what did we have in Korea? So, you know, so I just kept kind of working backwards. And at one point in that whole process, I said, well, when did we start doing search and rescue? And it turned out in World War One there wasn't really anything, which I was very surprised at. Pilots didn't even wear parachutes. You know, there were a lot of things that I was very surprised at. I, I had no idea. And I kept thinking, you know, if I didn't know these things, and I'm fairly, I'm, I'm not an aviation historian, um, you know, by training or anything, but I'm fairly well read about aviation history. And I thought, if I don't know these things, I bet there's a lot of other people that don't either. <laughs> and they would probably find this interesting. 
Yeah, and it's uh, it is an absolutely terrific story, particularly how you uh, weave the early history of search and rescue, uh, and then bring us back to the story of Vietnam. But let's go back to Vietnam for a minute. One of the things I particularly loved about this book. Uh, was the focus on the F-8 Crusader. And I kind of feel like, and I'm sure someone's gonna gonna message us and tell me I'm wrong, but I kind of feel like this is an aircraft that's lost to history. And in the history of the Vietnam War, there are so many iconic aircraft, the F-4, the A-4, the A-6. So it's nice to see someone write about the F-8 beyond uh, Barrett Tillman's MiG Master. But why, why does the F-8 get overlooked? I think a lot of it is just that it was kind of nearing the end of its its life cycle. I guess, if you will, when it entered Vietnam. It's kind of like the F-100, actually. You know, the F-100, I consider the F-100 and the F-8 kind of forgotten fighters. There's a lot of people that extol the praises of the, the F-100, but a lot of people have forgotten about it and forgotten the role that it had in Vietnam. And I think the F-8 is, you know, in that same category. They both came out about the same time in the mid-50s. And of course, you know, aircraft were, you know, cycling in and out uh, so quickly in those days that, you know, by 1965, they were both kind of long in the tooth, you know, even though both were still very capable aircraft and and so I think a lot of that was just both those aircraft got overshadowed I think by the F-4 um, and what the F-4 did during the war you know and that that was how I found this story in the first place was I was doing uh, research for an article about the F-8 for Air and Space Magazine and as part of that I tripped over uh, this particular ejection story and it kind of went from there so yeah. Shameless plug since we're talking about the forgotten aircraft you you know we talk about the F-8 and you mentioned the F-100 uh, shameless plug over here I believe the F-100 is on the cover of my new book uh, oh, yeah. do do out in may so if you're if you're curious about the f100 you know wait till may i got a great book for you so this this book is about one rescue in particular uh, so give us a real brief description and we can return to the details later but this case study if you will sets up kind of everything else in the book so take us through this this particular shoot down so this particular shoot down like i said he was hit over vietnam and headed out over the water ejected the thing that other thing that's really interesting about this is there was a destroyer carrying a helicopter in the uh, northern part of the gulf of tonkin and that destroyer also kind of acted as a acted as kind of like an air traffic controller and uh, when they heard that he had gotten hit they started to record the whole thing. And uh, when the whole thing was over, they gave him a copy of the tape. <laughs> you know, it's about 30 minutes and it's just radio transmissions and in a lot of cases it's really hard to understand. I mean there's a, but there are parts of it that are extremely clear and you can hear all of the the main uh, parts of it. Uh, so you can hear everything that's going on uh, in the recording. So anyway, so yeah, so he ejected, uh, landed in the Gulf. I'll try not to give too much of the story away, but uh, landed in the Gulf, even though he was quite far offshore, um, came down in the middle of a bunch of fishing boats. And these were not friendly fishing boats. So fortunately, his uh, mates had stayed with him and, and were circling over him. They knew where he went down. And there were also aircraft that were orbiting. You had a uh, HU-16 out of Da Nang uh, that had been orbiting offshore, you know, just in case somebody got shot down. And then it had a couple of uh, A-1 uh, escorts uh, with it. And um, there were a couple other A-1s involved in the rescue. I'm not exactly sure who all was where. Um, I think a couple of them kind of came in from other locations because once somebody got shot down the war kind of came to a standstill real quick you know well everybody kind of 
sorted things out. So there were all these different players. And so anyway, so everybody finally got over um, and the A1s were, you know, kind of keeping the, the fishing boats at bay. The other thing that happened, though, was the albatross uh, had trouble landing to pick him up because that was the original plan was the albatross would land and pick him up. Fortunately, though, there was this uh, destroyer that had a, a helicopter on it. This was an experiment that they had just started a week earlier. So that's the thing that I think is really cool is that if he had ejected like eight days earlier, this uh, helicopter would not have been there to kind of swoop in at the last minute and, and pick him up. You know? <laughs> and, you know, he, he would have still been rescued, but it would have been a, a much more prolonged uh, you know, rescue if the helicopter hadn't been right there to pick him up. So that was the thing, you know, when I was you know doing all this and kind of piecing it together, well, you know, who were all these airplanes and who was flying them and what were they doing? And started to realize that this was kind of a kind of a historic rescue that nobody really knows about. So that's why I kind of started writing it up as an article. And there's some other aspects to, to the rescue um, without going into, you know, giving the whole book away. You know? That was kind of what, you know, what really sparked my attention was the fact that this was kind of that first rescue in North Vietnam where all of those forces kind of came together in a way that was used for the rest of the war. It's really interesting the way you're describing this rescue as, as you know, the whole war comes to a stop to try to find this person. And that's something you kind of hear in a lot of these search and rescue stories with Vietnam and the, the whole search and rescue mission is such an iconic part of the Vietnam War. But like what you were saying a little earlier, we don't see as much of that with earlier wars. Like it's not really happening in World War One. We don't usually, I think, consider search and rescue a core part of World War Two. And in Korea, there's a little bit of it, but not on the same scale. What is it about the Vietnam War, do you think, that has the U.S. doing the shift towards such a heavy emphasis on search and rescue of these downed pilots uh, as a core component? Is that is that a completely new thing? And if so, why is that different than earlier times? I think a lot of it was just the technology was finally there because, you know, we had the albatross in Korea and we had um, helicopters, but they were not very capable helicopters. Whereas by the time you got to Vietnam, you had like Jolly Green Giants that can carry quite a few people. So now you're no longer sending in like one pilot and one PJ, you know, pararescue jumper. You're sending in a whole crew that can defend themselves, you know, with machine guns. And, you know, you, you've got a lot more capability. And I, I think that's really what it was, was, you know, up to that point, we knew what we wanted to do, but we didn't really have the equipment and the training and everything to be able to do it. And I, I think a lot of that really started to to come together in Vietnam. And I think also in Vietnam, you know, there was knowledge about how poorly the POWs were being treated and, and POWs were poorly treated in Korea, but, you know, I don't think we knew that as much. Uh, we found out at the end of the war in Vietnam, you know, I think there was kind of this attitude that we don't want people to get captured. You know, you don't want anybody to get captured anytime, but I think especially in Vietnam, you know, everybody knew how people were being treated. And so I think everything just kind of came together, you know, between the technology and the desire to make sure nobody fell into enemy hands and, you know, unless there was just no other way. Yeah. And as the training techniques and tactics kind of improve uh, from the, the mid 1960s to the early 1970s, I'll take a moment to, to plug a book that is not mine, but I know that Kansas Press has a brand new book coming out this month, Moral Imperative about combat search and rescue and the end of America's war in Vietnam. And that kind of will show you how everything had, had come to a, a maturation by, by the end of the war there. But, you know, one thing that's, that's really important, and it's almost so obvious that you don't think about it, with regard to this rescue and with regard to really every uh, shoot down in Vietnam is the ejection seat. I wouldn't say they get overlooked, but they're really an interesting and important piece of technology. And they play a huge role during the Vietnam War and, and in every conflict after that. 
So, so talk to us a minute, because I found this really fascinating, about the ejection process. Yeah, it, uh, it's basically there's uh, rockets, little rockets in the ejection seat. And uh, when you pull the handle, if everything works right <laughs> in most aircraft, uh, when you pull the handle, the, the first thing that happens is the canopy goes. Because you got to get rid of the canopy. Now, some some canopies are designed to to shatter. There's like something to break it as you go through. So um, uh, that's kind of older technology. Most modern ones, the first thing that happens is the the canopy goes, and then uh, and then almost immediately right after that, uh, this all happens very fast. <laughs> you know, immediately after that, the seat starts to go up the rail. There's little rockets that fire and push the seat up the rails. It's kind of like a little railroad track, you know, <laughs> is, is what it is. And and the seat shoots up the rails high enough so that you clear the tail of the aircraft and all that kind of stuff. Typically, and I've never ejected, so you know I don't know this personally, but the way the sequence works is, uh, you know, it goes up and then there's a little drogue chute that pops out at the top that stabilizes the seat and the parachute and everything. It gets everything all stable and actually pulls the pilot uh, or the crew member away from the seat. And the seat falls away. You should have uh, be left with your uh, seat kit, which is a survival kit attached to you. And then if you're below a certain altitude, there's a barrow attached to the chute so that it automatically opens if you're below that altitude. So that's why if somebody ejects it just a couple hundred feet above the ground, all they do is pull a handle and everything is done automatically after that. So now in this case, Willie ejected at a fairly high altitude. So the chute did not deploy right away. You know, he fell through several thousand feet uh, before the chute then opened. Because if you eject at high altitude, you know, if you're like at 30,000 feet, you don't want to eject and be sitting there drifting down to earth for 30 minutes in the freezing cold. <laughs> in the freezing cold. So, uh, so it'll it'll let you free fall for quite a ways, and then it will open, and then you know lower you the rest of the way to the ground. Speaking a little bit more broadly to the kind of general experience of pilots uh, that are getting shot down, because the the whole process of getting shot down that happens to so many pilots. I can only imagine what it must feel like to be in the cockpit of one of these airplanes and be facing some of these threats. Uh, potentially being shot down. As someone yourself who's been in the cockpit of some of these fighters, what do you think that must feel like to be flying in, in this combat environment, facing the threat of being shot down, or, or actually have your plane be damaged and need to pull that emergency chute for ejection? Uh, what What is that like? Well, you know, I've never been in combat. So yeah, so, I, you know, I, but, you know, just talking with the you know, folks who have been, um, uh, you know, I think it's a range of experiences. You know, I think some people are just so focused on the moment that they don't really have time to get scared. They get scared later. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And for, you know, a lot of the Navy pilots that I've talked to say that, you know, they, they were never that scared in combat, but they would get scared when they came back to the you know, to land, landing at night on a carrier after they've been in combat. And it would just all, you know, come together. And, and I think I even talk in the book a little bit about Willie would talk about how there were times when he landed and he was just shaking so bad that he couldn't even get out of the jet right away. He'd just have to sit there, you know, <laughs> for, for a few minutes to, to you know, kind of calm back down again. So, um, so, so I think a lot of times, you know, it doesn't necessarily hit you right away. You know, it's later when you go, oh, my gosh, I almost died. And then it kind of comes to you. So, you know, I, I've been through... You know, a few experiences in, in, you know, flying in fighters where something scary happened. In all of those cases, for me, it was kind of like this initial rush. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, what just happened? Okay, I'm still okay. Okay. And then later on, you get on the ground. That's when you kind of go, oh, my gosh. You know, that was <laughs> 
we almost died. You know, what was I thinking? You know, so, yeah. There's several other things we could we could still talk about here. Uh, but I do want to talk for a few minutes about POW and the MIA issue. Obviously, not every pilot who ejected was successfully rescued. Uh, not every pilot who ejected survived. Uh, but hundreds of pilots who did eject and did survive became prisoners of war. And this became a really pivotal issue during the Vietnam War. And you kind of alluded to it earlier. So how did this become part of your book and something that you wanted to discuss? Well, some of it was because Billy had uh, several folks that he flew with that during that first tour that became POWs. And, and so, you know, as I was telling their stories to kind of set the stage for the potential consequences of his ejection, it started to occur to me that I needed to maybe write a little bit more about the POW experience. Um, and then that actually is what led me to learning more about the MI, the POW MIA wives, which uh, was something that I knew a little bit about, you know, just because of my own personal history. I went to high school in an area that had a lot of, I guess you'd call them POW MIA kids. And I was somewhat familiar with, uh, you know, that whole movement and everything. Um, of the MIA POW MIA wives bringing the plight of the POWs to the attention of the public and uh, you know the wearing of the MIA bracelet the POW MIA bracelets and everything um, but I didn't know the full history on that and again that was something as I researched it I started to realize how much this movement was really the impetus for what we do today in terms of, of remains recovery you know, this idea that we're not going to forget about people in the Defense POW MIA accounting agency. I don't think any of that would have come about if it hadn't been for this, you know, kind of grassroots effort of these these women who, you know, just wanted to make sure their, their husbands didn't get forgotten. You know, it kind of turned into this you know, kind of imperative now that, you know, we don't leave you behind and we'll keep looking for you. You know, even, even if we think you're not alive anymore, we're going to keep looking for you and try to return you to your loved ones. You know? Yeah, the wives of Vietnam, uh, of the POW wives, really did God's work during the war. Uh, and I would point particularly to uh, Sybil Stockdale. Uh, and if our listeners are, are more interested in that, I, I can't recommend enough Admiral Stockdale and, and Sybil's book, uh, In Love and War. But if you're interested in the POW issues, there are some great autobiographies uh, that came out of Vietnam. Robbie Reisner's book, Bud Day's book, just fascinating stories of, of heroism. And they do all talk about the work that the wives did back home, which, which they all credit with helping them return with honor. As someone who flew F-4s and also the next generation, uh, F-16s and, and other things, what do you think the legacy is of this kind of SAR effort in Vietnam and how it's been carried forward into the future up to, up to the present? Is In what ways did the Vietnam experience kind of inform what happened later or evolve into uh, what's going on today in terms of search and rescue techniques? Well, I'm sure General Goldfein would have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of the gold standard for, for getting rescued anymore. So, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think there was a realization after Vietnam that, okay, we don't, we don't get rid of all this stuff again. There's still debates ongoing all the time about how much we should uh, devote to search and rescue forces, you know, how much should we spend. Those are legitimate debates to have, you know. Um, we have lots of missions that we have to carry on in the Department of Defense. But I think that after Vietnam, for once, we didn't abandon the mission. <laughs> you know, we, we, we kept it up. And I understand that some people have made comments on my Twitter feed about, you know, how uh, at the beginning of the first Gulf War, the search and rescue 
rescue folks weren't very organized, you know, but at least they were there, you know, that's kind of my thinking, you know, and unlike Vietnam where they weren't even there. So, you know, so that's the first step is just showing up. But uh, no, I think there is really a, you know, a commitment to the mission now. Um, and like I said, you know, General Goldfein, I think is your proof of that. His was a rescue that I considered writing about in the book because originally I was planning to kind of write about modern uh, CSAR, but, uh, but the book kind of took another direction with the, you know, with the POW MIA thing. But yeah, we don't use our CSAR forces in for combat, actual combat rescues much anymore, but we may get into a war someday where we will need them again. And just like Vietnam taught us, you can't start learning that mission over again. It's going to take you years to reconstitute that. And so if you're going to get into a shooting war that's only going to last a, a few months like Desert Storm, you better be ready, you know, because <laughs> you're not going to have time to put it all back together again. Yeah, it's funny you talk about how the book kind of changes as you were writing it. And I think that's something that, that any author finds is that there's stuff that gets put in at the last minute. There's stuff that gets cut out. And with particular emphasis on General Goldfein's shoot down in my first book, I had actually, I wrote two case studies. Uh, one was the shoot down of Vega 3-1, which was the F-117. And then the other one was General Goldfein's shoot down. And I had to pull one of them. The press said, you know, we got we to make a cut. So the Goldfein shoot down, all the write-up I did on that did not make it in there. Um, but General Goldfein has left a... Uh, a wealth of knowledge uh, and his story is great if you you haven't heard that one i will say i i do want either a catalina or an albatross if if i could have me a seaplane one day like like blue in um what was the what was the disney are you referencing the animated show tailspin <laughs> I am, I am referencing Tailspin, which is the uh, the cartoon uh, in my younger days that made me want to get a seaplane to begin with. Classic. And you'll note, you'll note that if this makes it into the podcast, that's a Disney reference, Mike. Oh my gosh! You had to sneak in another Disney reference every week. This guy. So, uh, Dr. Brookman, thanks for being with us. Again, the book is Unforgotten in the Gulf of Tonkin, a story of the U.S. military's commitment to leave no one behind. Uh, having just finished it myself, uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, it would make a, a great addition to any air power historian or, or, or uh, history buffs bookshelf. Uh, highly recommend it. Go out and get it. Uh, Dr. Brookman, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, are you on social media anywhere? Where can we uh, follow you and find you? Um, I'm on both Facebook and Twitter. Um, Twitter is probably my primary uh, social media. Um, and it's, uh, my handle is uh, Aviation Hist Gal. So I tried to do Aviation History Gal, but it wouldn't fit. So it's Aviation Hist Gal. <laughs> so, yeah. Or you can type my name in and I, I pop up. So yeah. yeah. Awesome. Brian, where can we find you online? So you can find me on Twitter and I am at Brian Lashley and you can also visit www.brianlashley.com. I'm also at www.eileenbjorkman.com. <laughs> awesome. I'm on Twitter at Hankenstein spelled with a T-I-E-N. I'm on Instagram as HankensMW. And I have a website too, mwhakins.com. All of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please go to balloonstodrones.com slash contact. And please, if you'd like to submit an article for publication, uh, you can go to balloonstodrones.com slash submissions. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.